Hi everyone, and welcome to episode number six of Lighting a Candle for Democracy, Australian politics from 1967 to 1977, the Whitlam years. The title of this episode is Labour in Vain, part two. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra region land on which much of this podcast is based. I pay respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal Nation, both past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. Okay, well this episode is a follow-on from the previous one, where we started a deep dive into the Australian Labor Party's history. From its beginnings at Federation, through to the early 1930s, after the Scullin Labor government disintegrated and lost government after another great split. This episode will review the party's history after Labor lost government in 1931 through to 1967 when Gough Whitlam would get his turn in leading the Australian Labor Party. These were tumultuous years in which depression and again war would leave its terrible mark. This episode will cover the years in which five men, John Curtin, Ben Shifley, Herbert Veer Evert and Arthur Corwell would lead their party. Over this period of 36 years, Labor would, Labor would be in government for just eight of them from 1941 to 1949. The remaining 28 years would be in opposition in the period after 1949 when they lost government, would see the ALP fighting another internal civil war in which the party would fracture over how to fight communism. The Australian Labor Party would struggle during the 1930s to, re to reunite a shattered and divided party. But Australia's oldest political movement would demonstrate over the years an incredible ability to rejuvenate itself its biggest problem, the New South Wales branch of the party, which separated from the national ALP, would finally start to resolve itself in 1936, when an agreement was made to readmit the New South Wales, New South Wales ALP back to the Federal Labor Party fold. By this time, the war clouds were starting to darken. Germany under the Nazis were militarising again, and a resurgent Japan was threatening China. In Australia, with the depression still causing high unemployment, the communists had started to seize control of key trade unions. By 1939, the world would be at war again, but this time led by an anti-Labour government, led by a new Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies. Or, at this time, he was just known as Robert Menzies. Menzies would struggle as a wartime Prime Minister leading a country that was unprepared for the conflagration that was about to occur. By this time, Labor was under the leadership of John Curtin. Curtin, an anti-conscriptionist anti from the previous war, had revitalized his party. The 1940 election had seen Labor regain enough seats to be on level terms with the Menzies-led coalition government. Menzies would have to form a government with the support of independence as a result of this. 
But that means his government will fall the next year. And, in, and after 10 years in the wilderness, John Curtin will be sworn in as a new Labour Party Prime Minister on the 7th of October, 1941. The Federal Labour Party, led by Curtin during the wartime years, and then Ben Chifley after Curtin's death, through to 1949, would be in government for eight years until 1949. In government, the ALP would be unlike the World War I and Great Depression administrations, would actually be relatively united, fighting the war and planning for the future after the Second World War finally ended in 1945. The Labour government's unity in fighting the war would see them winning elections in 1943 and 1946. But true to form, in the later years of its government from 1947 to 1949, the Labour movement began to unravel and start the process of bitter infighting all over again. It would come at the start of the Cold War, with the United States of America and the Soviet Union, once allies, engaging in a battle between two separate and opposed ideologies. The battle would be between the two ideologies of communism and democracy slash capitalism. In Australia, the Communist Party would never have significant political influence. Their main competitor, the Australian Labor Party would always tie up the votes of working people and they would never get more than, more than 2% of the vote in the House of Representatives where governments were made. But the Communists found a weak spot that Labor had. This would be in the trade union movement where, when they, where they could exert their influence on the Labor Party through their workers and the rank and file. The communists were militants and would find their niche in the unions where they could actually get real results for their members. There would be a number of key trade unions that by the end of World War II would be actually headed by communists, which included the Federated Iron Workers Association and the, and the Waterside Workers Federation, as well as the Mining Federation as well. After having control over key unions would enable the communists to influence Labor Party policy. But there are many in the Labor Party who feared the Communist control of the trade unions because of the means that they could use to influence and even control the ALP. To combat this, the party in the middle of World War II would form what would be known as the Industrial Groups, or the Groupers for short. The purpose of the Groupers was to organise ALP-backed unionists to work against the communists within their unions and wrest back control of those unions from the communists. By the end of the 1940s, the groupers would prove to be highly, highly successful in this task, gaining control and leadership from the communists in a number of key unions. However, the groupers did not, were not able to achieve this all on their own. They were strongly influenced and helped by sections of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in Victoria, by an anti-communist group known as the Catholic Social Studies Movement, or the Movement for short. Formed in 1942, the movement would be led by a doctrinaire Roman Catholic by the name of, Bartholo by the name of Bartholomew 
Augustine or B.A. Santa Maria. The movement would supply a number of Roman Catholics who would involve themselves in their unions by attending meetings and organising their numbers to vote against communists in the unions. Santa Maria had been a layman intellectual within the Roman Catholic Church and had been editor, editor of their monthly newspaper, The Catholic Worker. The newsletter would attack both capitalism and communism and instead promote, promote a third way and an individualistic approach which involved having small individual property owners living in cooperatives. The key point to remember here is that the movement was attached, was actually attached to the Catholic Church, but they were also able to provide a support to the industrial groups. Their fanaticism would introduce a religious aspect to the war against the communists. The Roman Church would have a complicated relationship with the Australian Labor Party. When the ALP split in 1916 over conscription, the party's dynamics would change, which would see Catholics, who were predominantly from Irish roots, finally increase, increase their numbers and influence within the party. While Labor would previously openly proclaim their commitment to socialism, the Russian Revolution in 1917 had complicated this. Communism and socialism became harder to differentiate. Communism's almost religious fervour and commitment to atheism would trouble many in the church's hierarchy. Communism's worldview would arguably be a competitor with the Roman Catholic Church for the workers' minds and indeed souls. The communist advance, the, union, the communist advance in the union, in the union movement would, would actually, between the wars, would actually trouble both the ALP and the Roman Catholic hierarchy. The ALP's response, as we said before, was to create the industrial groups to take on the communists and the unions and retake their leadership. The Roman Catholic Church had also formed the, um, um, the Catholic Action Group or the movement at the same time to serve exactly the same purpose. Therefore, the ALP and the Catholic Church were at one with their fear of communism. Right? Well, not quite. Saint, as I mentioned before, Santa Maria and Catholic Action, or the movement, had introduced a religious aspect to it. By 1942, priests in various dioceses around Melbourne were organising church-going parishioners to coordinate anti-communist activities. The movement, as the group had increasingly became to be known, had expanded, it then expanded its activities to a national level. Unlike the groupers, the movement was highly secretive about its activities right up until the early 1950s. The leadership of the Australian Labor Party either did not or did not want to know that the movement was having a major influence on the industrial groups, which of course were part of the, which were part of the ALP apparatus. The facts were, were that the movement, a body outside of the Australian Labor Party, were organising 
and directing the industrial groups, which gave them an effective control of the groupers. Another complicating factor in all this was the communists and the trade unions were starting to form what were known as unity tickets, in which a communist and a non-communist candidate could stand together for office. Over time, the groupers, influenced strongly by the movement, would begin to attack those who may not have had communist links, but merely had socialist tendencies, which may have included a willingness to strike. In 1947, the Prime Minister at the time, Ben Chifley, had announced that his government would nationalise every privately owned bank in Australia. The private banks would react with strong and at times vicious campaign. The legislation would be challenged in the High Court and would be ruled to be unconstitutional. In June of 1949, then the mining, the mining unions would go on strike over leaving entitlements and working hours. Electricity generation at the time was highly dependent on coal. So as the strike drag, dragged on, industry would start grinding to a halt, leading to unemployment and homes would go cold in the middle of winter. Ben Chifley as Prime Minister would then do the unthinkable for a Labor government. The union, would, the mining union would have their, their, their funds frozen, their leaders would be imprisoned, and the army would be sent to the coal fields to work the mines. Chifley had acted decisively, but had attacked this party's core supporters, who for some, would never forgive him for what they saw as an act of betrayal. Then, in December 1949, the new anti-Labour Party, known as the Liberal Party, led by Sir Robert Menzies in coalition with the Country Party, would defeat Ben Chifley's Labour government in a landslide. What was worse for Labour was that the, the election would see a number of Labour Party MPs elected from the state of Victoria, who had very close links to the movement. They may not have known it at the time, but the Australian Labor Party would not return to government for almost a quarter of a century. Being out of government would see pent-up anger and division rear its ugly head in what was now Labor in opposition. Menzies had cleverly used anti-communism in his campaigning to raise fear in the community and stoke the fires within the Labour Party itself. In June of 1950, Menzies would introduce legislation to the Parliament banning the Communist Party. The ALP would be hopelessly divided on the move, with the party's federal executive deciding narrowly to let the legislation pass. But after the bill was passed, the former Labour Government Attorney General, Herbert Beer Everett, better known as the Doc, and the previous Justice of the High Court, made the decision to accept a brief from the Communist Party to represent them in a challenge to the bill in the High Court. Everett, who I would argue was the best legal mind in the Commonwealth, even better than his rival Menzies, would win the case by having the legislation ruled as being unconstitutional. Bowed but unbeaten. Menzies decided to call a referendum, which if successful, would amend the constitution, which would then enshrine it into law for all time. 
Despite early opinion polls suggesting that the yes vote would win resoundingly, Evett would travel the breadth of the country, campaigning for the no vote. Evett's campaign would pay off when the no vote won narrowly. It would be Evett's finest hour, but it would be a pirate victory for the ALP. After Ben Chiffey's passing in June, 950, June of 1951, Evett became the new leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party. The things were about to get worse, much worse. The Victorian crew and, the right, and their right-wing supporters within the Australian Labor Party would not forgive Evett for defending and seemingly fighting for the Communist Party. There would be no turning back. On the eve of the 1954 election, a senior diplomat with a Soviet Union ambassador in Canberra, Mr Vladimir Mikhailovich Petrov, would defect and seek asylum in Australia. Prime Minister Mendes would make the announcement in Parliament on the 13th of April 1954, on the second last sitting day before the election. Menzies would then announce a Royal Commission into espionage activities in Australia. Everett and Labor would then lose the 1954 election narrowly in a campaign, again, dominated by anti-communism. The, the Petrov Royal Commission would prove to be a show trial, but it became complicated when members of Everett's staff were named. Documents were found which mentioned Everett's staff, but then Everett made the mistake of appearing before the commission to defend his staff, who had been named. It is understandable to show loyalty to his, to his staff, however, however, Everett would become too emotionally involved. The Labor leader would eventually be directed by the Royal Commission that he could no longer appear before it. And by this time, the ALP had already shown shine through fracturing. The majority of the Labor caucus would be highly critical of Everett's decision to appear before the Royal Commission and the Victorian crew were working to remove Evert from the leadership. The Victorian branch of the party had was dominated by the right-wing industrial groups and Catholic action. Evert had tried to deal with the movement. Evert had tried to deal with the movement and the groupers, even talking to B.A. Santa Maria before the 1954 election to seek his advice on the policy speech. After pub publicly opposing Dr. Evert, on a number of issues, Evert, who had courted the groupers, turned on them. On Tuesday night, the 5th of October, 1954, Herbert Thier Evert, the doc, the leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party, would issue a statement that would be tantamount to a declaration of war on sections of his party, which he accused of, um, I quote, disloyal and subversive actions, unquote. Everett in, in his press release referred to, um, referred to outside forces controlling the ALP and accusing the members of, I quote, clerical fascism. I would like to read part of this statement. It is quite fascinating. And I quote, the strong and determined desire of the overwhelming majority of trade union officials and membership for solidarity within the movement, the labour movement, have been given eloquent expression 
of the Labor Day celebrations in New South Wales. But the matter is such Australia of but the matter is of such Australia-wide importance to the to the Labor movement that I've come I've come to the conclusion that I must say more about the present position. Especially as far as the Commonwealth Parliament is concerned. At the recent federal elections on May 29, we put forward a policy of development and we polled a majority of the people of Australia. We made gains in every state except Victoria. All of this was achieved by the self-sacrifice of tens of thousands of voluntary workers for labour. It was achieved too, despite the thinly veiled use against labour of the opening speech before the Petroff Commission, the statement of what seemed to be distant, many poles apart from the truth of the matter, so far as it has been more so far so far as it has been much more recently revealed by the sworn evidence of many witnesses. But in the elections, one factor told heavily against us the attitude of a small minority group of Labour members, particularly in the state of Victoria, which has since 1949 become increasingly disloyal to the Labour movement and to the Labour leadership. Adopting methods which strikingly resemble both communist and fascist infiltration of larger groups. Some of these groups have created an almost intolerable situation, calculated to deflect the labour movement from the pursuit of established labour objectives and ideals." Unquote. And this, in addition to this, came also remain part of the statement, and I quote, it seems certain that the activities of this small group are largely directed from outside the Labor movement. The Melbourne News Weekly appears to act as their organ. A serious position exists. Since the referendum of 1951, Labor leadership has become very patient with some of these outbursts, solely in the interest of, solely in the interest of solidarity. But our patience is abused and our tolerance is interpreted as a sign of weakness. The Labour Party cannot yield to the dictates of any minority which functions in a way contrary to the wishes of the overwhelming majority of the rank and file of the Labour movement. Their procedures adopted cannot be accidental. They are, they are deliberately planned. They are causing a rising tide of disgust and anger throughout Labour supporters. I cannot overlook the fact that in some analogous circumstances, Mr Chifley was subjected to sniping and snide attacks which helped to undermine his health and strength. The failing of the rank and file of Labor throughout Australia is strongly determined. Thousands of messages have come to me from Labor leagues and trade unions. They are almost all to the effect that this planned and somewhat desperate attempt to disrupt and injure Labor leadership is really intended to assist the Menzies government, especially in its attempt to initiate in Australia some of the un-British and un-Australian methods of the totalitarian Australian police state. Having in view the absolute necessity for real and not sham solidarity and unity within the movement, I am bringing this matter before the next meeting of the federal, federal executive with a view to appropriate action being taken by the Federal Labor Conference in January. 95% of the rank and file of the Parliamentary Labour Party are absolutely loyal to the movement. 
to, to the labor movement. There is not the slightest reason why their efforts should be undermined by a tiny minority." Unquote. Now, this was, well, figuratively speaking anyway, the declaration of war that I was talking about was clearly directed against what I would call the Victorian crew, those new Labour Party MPs who had been elected from Victoria in 1949, who were strongly under the influence of the movement, and also the industrial groups and Catholic Action, or the movement as a whole. Abbott's statement was a piercing and brilliantly directed statement that worked on the emotions of the Labour Party and demonstrated his understanding of Labour Party history and distrust of, and I quote, outside forces, unquote. The tragedy for Labour was that it was directed against their own comrades and not their real opposition. Evett followed up his explosive statement with action. In December of 1954, an internal investigation into the Victorian branch of the Australian Labour Party and the sections of the Victorian Party had become subject to outside influences. Just two weeks later, a motion was moved at a special meeting of caucus to have a spill of all the leadership positions, including Everts. The meeting would bring out passions and pent-up emotions directed at Everett with blood and thunder. But Everett knew, how to, knew, Everett knew that to protect his leadership, that he would have to expose his opponents and then tar them with the brush of disloyalty. There are a number of speeches on that day, including these, which I would actually like to quote. The first one is from Jack Mullins. And I quote, This is the first time in history of the great Australian Labour Party that we've had to witness the sordid spectacle of a leader setting out to deliberately smear his mates. Dr. Everett stooped so low so as to disregard the, the, altogether the machinery set up by the party to settle internal differences. And then turning to Everett, he said, Your great weakness, Dr. Everett, is that you are devoid of principle. You are devoid of loyalty. You are devoid of decency. And you are devoid of concern. For what your selfish, self-centred motives might do to the party that saw fit to elevate you to the leadership. Dr. Everett, you are willing to fractify your party and to increase tension amongst your followers. Step by step, you have taken us all to the brink of the precipice of disaster we face right now. In this, my last appeal before the Moscow trial that Dr. Everett has set up, I beg you all to try and understand the seriousness of the decision we are asking you to take. And again, this quote, from, from Joe Fitzgerald, another member of caucus. I say quite deliberately that if it wasn't for some of the, some of the traitors inside this party, Dr. Everett would have won the election. You and your mob did everything you could by way of your filthy whispering campaign to brand our leader a communist and unfit for office. Nobody is held in this movement at the point of a gun and if a person can't agree with its policy, he should get out of the party. No one has the right to honour himself with the AOP label 
unless he's a fair deacon labour man, unquote. And finally, this one from the legendary Eddie Ward, and I quote, If Dr. Evett was out of the chair tomorrow, you'd be sabotaging the new leader, wouldn't you? Unless he was willing to join you in sabotaging the party and its principles. You mob take your orders from Newsweekly at Pope Santa Maria, don't you? You can't deny it. Unquote. By the time that the motion came to the vote, the meeting would be in uproar and out of control. The events that happened next is subject to some dispute. To count the votes, it was alleged that Everett would jump on the table in an attempt to work out the numbers. According to some reports, Everett would then shout out, and I quote, take their names, take their names, unquote. But according to Clyde Cameron, it would be Eddie Ward that did this. But either way, the votes against the motion would be, would be would be the vote the votes the votes for the motion against the motion would win by fifty two votes to twenty eight, which meant that Everett survived, but the Australian Labor Party's internal convulsions would only grow. On December the third, nineteen fifty four, the party's federal exec, executive announced the party in Victoria would be, and I quote, reorganised unquote. A new Victorian state executive would be elected to replace the existing one, but the old executive, made up of groupers, would not recognise the new one. It would all come to a head in March of 1955, where the party would hold its annual conference in Hobart, Tasmania. The ALP annual conference, which was the party's supreme policy-making body, was comprised of six-member ALP delegations from each state in the Commonwealth. The conference would have all the, would face the drama and farce of having two Victorian delegations, the old one and the new one, attending the ALP's most important meeting, which shut down party policy on all issues. The federal executive would vote narrowly to admit the new anti-grouper executive from Victoria. The Victorian delegates from the old executive would still turn up, but they would actually find their entrance to the conference being blocked. The police would have to turn up trying to manage a very heated situation. Delegates to the conference would clash on the executive's decision and it would get to the stage that appeared the two conferences would actually form. But the numbers were against the groupers who were finished within the ALP. A motion was passed to withdraw recognition of all the industrial groups. The third great split and the Australian Labor Party had now begun. Hundreds, hundreds of the members of the party would be expelled, with 104 members alone from Victoria. Seven of the members expelled from the party would be federal parliamentarians. Those who had left the ALP would eventually form a new political party known as the Democratic Labor Party. The first casualty for Labor 
would be the Victorian state Labor government led by John Kane Senior, which would fall on the 7th of June 1955 after losing a no confidence motion. The Democratic Labor Party, the DLP, would never win enough votes to gain seats in the House of Representatives, but they were still able to keep Labor out of government for the next 17 years. They were able to do this by their, direct, by their direction of preferences, which invariably put the Labor Party last. The hatred between the official ALP and their ex-party comrades were intense, as it was in any civil war. Stories abound of former comrades never speaking again. Roman Catholic and Protestant clergymen thundering from their pulpits, fistfights at public meetings, and those who had left the ALP receiving dead rats in the mail. Roman Catholics such as Arthur Corwell and Fred Daly, who remained in the Australian Labor Party, would be placed in an almost impossible position, in an almost impossible position having, to, having to prove their loyalty to the, to the ALP, but then being attacked from their Catholic, Catholic brethren. The results in the short term would be catastrophic for Labor. They would lose office both in Victoria and Queensland and would not be back in power for federally for over a decade and a half. The new Labor Party executive in Victoria will be hard line in its interpretation of party policy, following a party line that would be almost the other extreme to the old executive. The federal executive, meanwhile, would follow a similar course by taking a more active approach in directing party policy to its parliamentary wing. Evert had successfully rid the Labor Party of the groupers and their Catholic action fellow travellers, but it had come at an enormous cost. Evert was a spent force and would finally retire from politics in 1960, a broken man. Arthur Corwell, Arthur Corwell, Evert's deputy, would be elected as the new leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party in 1960, and in, and in an upset result, Gough Whit Edward Gough Whitlam would be Corwell's deputy. Corwell and Whitlam were an odd couple. Corwell was an experienced warrior in the Labor, in the Labor movement, being through all, all three of the Labor, Labor Party's great splits. The 1955 split had made Corwell a bitter man with his resentment directed against the sections of his church, the Roman Catholic Church, that had split his party. He was, generally speaking, a traditional Labour man. Whitlam, on the other hand, was 21 years younger than his leader. He was a QC, articulate, middle class, outspoken on what he saw as Labour's shortcomings and his belief in reforming the Labour Party. Despite this, Corwell would lead the Labour Party into the 1961 election and would come within one seat of winning power from Robert Menzies' coalition government. Labour had come so close but the party would resort to their old ways shortly after the election. On Monday, the 17th of March, 1963, a special conference of the, of the Labor Party would meet at the Kingston Hotel to decide on what Labor's policy would be on the establishment of the United States military base at Northwest Cape. The concept of foreign bases on Australian soil was a controversial topic for Labor, so, Corwell as leader decided to pass the buck to the federal executive to make his decision on what the party stance would be 
Rather than letting the Parliamentary Party caucus sort it out. This was a big mistake. A special conference had been called that was made up of 36 Labour Party delegates, six from each state. Corwell as leader and Whitlam as deputy would not be able to vote in the proceeding. A famous photo, a famous photo was taken of Corwell and Whitlam out sitting out, standing outside the Kingston Hotel, looking in while the, 30, while the 36 delegates debated and voted on the US base. A brilliant Labour Party advertisement entitled Every Picture Tells a Story, Mr Corwell and the Faceless Men, would be, would be published. I'd like to read the whole advertisement because I think it's just absolutely brilliant. And I quote, This astonishing picture concerns you because 36 unknown men not elected to Parliament nor responsible to the people were laying down policy and giving orders on critical questions of defence and foreign relations which could affect every man and woman in the country. Australia's security and your security are involved when national leadership on great affairs is surrendered to, out, out, to unknown outsiders bitterly fighting with one another about action on national survival. And now you see what I mean. Did it not matter that the special conference made a decision for the ALP to support the base with certain conditions attached? What mattered was that photo and the 36 faceless men jibe. The coalition government led by the brilliant Menzies would hold a snap election at the end of 1963, in which the coalition government would increase their majority by 2 to 22. After the election, Whitlam would write a report for the New South Wales branch of the ALP, which would later be leaked to the press. And I would like to read this too. In the intervening years between 1961 and 1963, Mr Corwell did not speak or act as impressively as Prime Minister Menzies. The Labour members of Parliament did not show the same cohesion and solidarity as the Liberal ones, and the Labour organisation and its affiliated bodies were not so, not so self-effacing and discreet as the Liberal organisation and its backers. The party policies have been improved, but the manner of formulating and presenting them obscured their merits." Unquote. Corwell and Whitlam's relationship would never recover after this. Over the next three years, Corwell would hold stubbornly onto his leadership. Labor would, fi would find itself embroiled in debate over state, over state aid to private, in particular Roman Catholic schools. The Labor government in New South Wales would fall in 1965 after almost a quarter of a century in power. One of the key causes of their fall was the state government's election proposal to provide allowances to private school students, which was inconsistent with the party's federal executive policy direction, which, which was against any form of state aid. Whitlam would fight the federal executive on the issue, promoting a compromised means-based approach of allocating education funding to both public and private schools. 
In February of 1966, the party's federal executive, led by Mr Joe Chamberlain, will propose a constitutional challenge to the Menzies government grant to, to, make, to provide grants to private schools for science blocks. In the middle of campaigning for a by-election, Whitlam would confront the federal executive head-on when he made a public statement on the party's federal executive where he said, and I quote, I can only say that we got rid of the 36 faceless men stigma to be faced with the 12 witless men, unquote. Whitlam would face the federal executive on the 3rd of March, 1966, where the federal executive would move a motion for Whitlam's expulsion from the party. Joe Chamberlain, along with Arthur Corwell, were certain that they had the numbers to get rid of Whitlam, but Whitlam would escape narrowly after, from a censure, narrowly escaped with a censure after Tom Burns from Queensland intervened on his behalf. The results of the eventual 1966 election should have been no surprise to the ALP. Corwell and Whitlam despised each other, and the party was divided over a number of issues which included state aid and foreign policy. Corwell would base his campaign on being against the Vietnam War, and particularly conscription, a Corwell called, and I quote, a lottery of death, unquote. The Labor had no hope against the United Coalition Government, led by Harold Holt, who looked younger and fresher than the ageing Corwell. Even worse was that Whitlam, his deputy, was contradicting Corwell's promise to immediately withdraw all Australian troops from Vietnam. Labor would suffer a landslide defeat, going backwards with the coalition government winning another 10 seats, which gave them a majority of 41 seats. Labor had been out of power for 17 years and were fighting internal battles which seemed to never end. Arthur Corwell would resign from the leadership shortly after the election. And on the 8th of February 1967, Edward Gough Whitlam would be elected as a new leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party. But the vote was relatively close, with James Ford Cairns, the up-and-coming spiritual leader of the party's left faction, winning 15 first preference votes against Whitlam's 32. Whitlam had inherited the leadership of a party that, particularly in Victoria, was fighting their new leader on his attempts to reform the Australian Labor Party. Yet despite this internal struggle, Gough Whitlam would take the fight up to halt in 1967, taking advantage of the, government, the coalition government's deep div divisions. But Holt's disappearance in December of 1967 would change things again. Whitlam would now be facing the unpredictable John Gray Gorton, who replaced Holt as the new Prime Minister in January of 1968. The game was indeed afoot. Now, our books of the week. Well, I've got a few today. Um, first of all, uh, The Split, Australian Labour in the 50s uh, by Robert Murray, uh, published in 1970 by F.W. Cheshire Publishing Proprietary Limited. Oh, this is def this is a definitive book of the Labour's, Labour Party's split in the 1950s and the events leading up to it. Brilliant detail definitely worth reading up, read, reading this, uh, because to go into detail of that great split that occurred in the 1950s. Secondly, um, A Certain Grandeur, 
Gough Whitlam in Politics, by, written by Graham Frudenberg, published in 1977 by Macmillan Company of Australia Limited, and a little bit of trivia for you, was, age, was the Age Newspaper Book of the Year in 1977. Uh, this is written by Graham Frudenberg, who was Gough Whitlam's press secretary and special advisor from the time Whitlam was elected leader in February, from, in February 1967 to 11th, 11th of November, 1975. Frudenberg was very close to Whitlam, so he's a touch, a touch sentimental for my liking, but it's still a well-written book from someone who was so close to Gough Whitlam. Thirdly, Alan, the Red Fox Read, by, written by Ross Fitzgerald and Stephen Holt, published in 2010, by the University of New South Wales Press Limited. This is a detailed biography of Alan Reid, a controversial and remarkable journalist who had a fascinating interest in the Labor Party, the love-hate relationship. It gives a lot of useful information and useful background into Reid's relationship with senior ARP politicians who would often provide Reid with useful information. And lastly, the Confessions of Clyde Cameron, written by Clyde Cameron, as told to Daniel Connell, published by ABC Enterprises in 1990. Clyde Cameron was one of the Labor, the Labor Party's key machine men during the post-war period. He played a key part in Labor's battles against the grouper. A ruthless man whose accounts of this era is a great read. Okay. So next episode, we'll talk about John Gorton's beginning as Prime Minister and the challenges that he faced. Take care, everybody, and I'll see you then. Goodbye for now.